My name is Russell Cox, and you're tuned in to the State of the Black Man's Mental Health. Welcome to Getting My Cheese Back on My Cracker, and I'm Paige Benjamin of Atomic Travels, and my co-host for this series, Copeland. Tell us who you are. I'm Cope. I'm currently in Utah, since everybody's going to tell you where they're at. <laughs> All right. And in this series, uh, we've talked about the state of the Black man's mental health, and um, it's been an amazing journey so far. And so we are going to continue with this last installment with a wonderful group of gentlemen. Um, gentlemen, tell us who you are, what you do, and where you're from. Okay, just going to follow the same order. Uh, my name is Benjamin Sam. Uh, I'm, I'm Ghanaian, so from Ghana. I'm currently based in the Netherlands. Um, I'm a writer. I'm also with the OMEC, which is a community of uh, Africans of African, uh, sorry, people of African descent, uh, tripping over my words there. Um, and I've been working with them for over a year. Um, I'm also a writer, a creative writer, and a user experience writer. Um, yeah, so that's me. Great. My name is uh, Alade McKen. Uh, I'm currently in New York City. Um, I am a higher education professional. I work closely with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. I also work in the community-based spaces with uh, youth of African descent, um, primarily working with identity development and uh, really advocating for their social and economical needs. Okay. Good afternoon. I'm uh, Curtis Callens. I'm an educational principal of Foundations Behavioral Health, grades 2 through 12. Also an educational consultant and an author of a missions, um, a principal's mission on how to design trauma-sensitive school. So it's a trauma-informed care training manual that's out on Amazon. So plug right there. Go get right. Your <laughs> Okay, okay. So one of the things that we wanted to kind of continue with the conversation of is the state of the black men's mental health, right? Um, one of the things that you guys all know and have experienced in life is that, you know, mental health within our community is something that we don't really talk about up until recently. But because of that, um, our question is, what is the state that you believe that black men's mental health is in today? Um, and then what, where do you think your state is at this point? Anybody could jump on. All right, I uh, I think that's like a very huge, deep question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't know that I can speak to the state of the black man's uh, mental health. What I can say is that um, it's it's like you said, it's currently in in an infant stage where we are starting to look at um, that conversation and starting to have those conversations about our our mental health um so it's really still early on um that state uh it's still not i feel like we're still not having haven't gotten to a place where we should we should be healing yet we haven't gotten there yet and i think it's going to take time um i wrote an article recently on uh confronting mental health as black men and i interviewed um, a psychologist dr howard marbury um and he was saying a lot about how sometimes you know like people come into his practice he's based in the states by the way um how people come into his practice and as soon as they see him 
their eyes light up. Like, thank God my psychologist or my therapist is black. Mm. So, you know, like he can understand. So currently what it, what it is, is uh, the field of psychology itself is not particularly catered to black people or black men because the cultural aspect of therapy in psychology is still now starting to pick up. So there's not very much help for uh, for black men. So, um, Cope, you, you kind of had a question earlier, which was inquiring around your perception of African-American men or the African-American experience here. Coming from Ghana to the Netherlands, how starkly similar or different do you see the experiences? Ooh, um, yeah, now we have to talk about race <laughs> <laughs> in, in this conversation. Um, so I, I, th this year, 2021, was, was when I realized I'm actually a black man. Mm. Um, up until now, I knew it, but I also was not, I had not really clicked. Like I was not treated as a black man um, because in Ghana, I'm, you know, I'm part of the dominant uh, race, right? So it's more black people than any, anything else. Um, but over here, um, it's not uh, in your face type of racial situation. And I think uh, to a very large extent, uh, people here measure racism against what happens in America and so believe that some of the things they do are not actually racist. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> what a bar we've said. Huh? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting for me uh, because I, I worked in this place where um, and also lived with people who made me aware of my blackness. And it was always like a constant reminder that you are black, you are black. And before then, I had been here for a year already, but I was in a school where, uh, an international school. So everyone was cool, everyone was respectful. Um, it was a bubble, it was a great bubble that uh, that school created for me. So it was, it was great. But then post-school, um, one person I met actually asked me, oh, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from Ghana. And then they're like, oh, is that in the Middle East? And I'm just like, at that point, what about me looks Middle Eastern? Um, so it, it bothered me. She, she was not necessarily hostile, but it was just the ignorance um, around the things she would say to me and the constant uh, gravitating of the conversations towards race was it it was unsettling for me so this was the year that i really came to terms with being perceived or being called or being a black man um or a black person and it's 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 been a baptism of fire <laughs> i have to say <laughs> i have to say uh but you know i've come to terms with it i have learned to start navigating these spaces uh not everybody here you're not going to meet a majority of people being um overtly racist towards you um or even covertly it's it's just in certain spaces because there are still certain people um out here who um think it's still not a problem in in europe or in this country 
That's deep. I appreciate you sharing that because it, it gives, you know, as Coppola said, we set the bar high, right? Um, and, you know, I, I was in Europe and, um, you know, there there's a term called American nice, right? Where everybody says, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, pardon yeah. me. And, you know, I was told that, you know, if you have to say, excuse me, I'm sorry, pardon me to everybody you bump into, you're going to be saying it all day. And so that's why sometimes you find that there are people not as cordial, right? Yeah. Um, as, as you would apprent uh, as you would find back at home in Ghana, right? Like, you know, um, or you would find back here. So that that's that's interesting that you state that. Um, and and I guess my follow-up would be, you know, you're coming to grips with being or being seen as black, right? Mm-hmm. Is that a because a, a, you mentioned the bubble from going to school, but do yes. you feel like Ghana being being raised in Ghana also created a bubble? Because that could also almost be said for us as well here, right? Or you know, and any any discussions around that, everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not, the only thing I would say you have to deal with um, in Ghana is that there's still this colonized mindsets that we have, uh, Africans still have, uh, such that if you, if even you, even though you're black like me, um, were to come to Ghana, would have more access to opportunities. Um, but that's because of where you live and that's because of your passport, because of who you are. Um, so we still have that kind of uh, that mentality that, you know, what is out there is better. So you will find perhaps a company um, very willing to hire experts and pay them triple the wages they could pay uh, a Ghanaian who's got similar qualifications or maybe even better, um, you know, because of that perception that what is foreign is better. So that is the only thing I had to face as the only thing remotely race uh, racial that I had to face uh, in Ghana that any Ghanaian has to face or African has to face. That's funny because it's almost kind of reverse here as well, right? Um, a lot of Cope and, and Curtis, right? Like we feel as though that some of the opportunities, well, not everyone here, but there is a sentiment that foreigners get more opportunities than people that are here to an extent well, right? i don't know if it's i don't know if it's the same sentiment i feel like we've i i feel like what happens here is foreigners are able to create more opportunities because of the way that they move because their our society over here is very much invested in separating us and if you weren't born here you don't come here with that mentality and if there's and even if there's just two of you coming here, like life is easier because maybe you split a studio, you know, for a year. Your rent is like there. It's when you come here knowing that the both of you are on a path. It's easier to accept the things that we as Americans wouldn't accept as inconveniences. So I think it's a little bit different, but yeah. 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 So with that being said, I know we went off into kind of diving deep into Benjamin's experiences, right? Um, but can you um Alade and Kurt kind of relate to somewhat what he's talking about as as it relates to the black experience, the black man's experience? And where are we mentally? 
it, it, it's a, a different experience, um, my, my opinion, um, really being pretty much uh, assimilated for decades, decades and, and our culture being traumatized where we normalize behaviors. So therefore we walking around like everything is normal and this is the way of life. Um, so we experience um, the state of black men mental health is making small increments of growth, I, I would say. Um, first is the acknowledgement. There are a lot of starting to begin, we know that our entertainers are very influential and they're starting to have those discussions, those discussions about just awareness. So we're in like the beginning stages of really recognizing that we were impacted um, with some toxic stress. That, that's really number one. So it's sort of like right now, our state is kind of like dismantling a little bit of the stigma and the facade that it doesn't exist. It's more of, okay, this, it, it does exist. So now we need to go into different tiers, you know, dealing with coping, dealing with, okay, how do we begin to heal? Or how do we begin the process of breaking transgenerational trauma that's there? So with, with black men in Philadelphia, I'm speaking from a sense of my experience in Philadelphia, it's starting to make some small increments of growth. We have a lot of organizations. Um, black Men Hill is a phenomenal organization that provides free therapy and counseling for brothers. Um, getting access to the services, but we're still at a spiritual war within our city. So that that right there, it's like, it's smack right dead in your face, but we do see a little glimmer of light. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, just to kind of stay in the same vein with uh, Dr. Curtis is, um, is I think that, you know, from an educational standpoint, uh, and being an educator and in the field of myself as well, but more in higher education, um, you know, I think we're at that point of, in the state of black men's health where we're in a state of, I guess, relearning, you know, because education at its highest form is a process of um, attaining self-knowledge. So that knowledge of self, you know, is one of those um, things that I think is just, I, I would assume or make an assumption that we have made an attempt to get this education from our peers, from our elders, and you know, in our attempts to get it from the system. And what Dr. Curtis alluded to was that, you know, we assimilated, you know, to these particular needs. And now I think we're at that place where it's so vivid, it's so, it's in your face, you know, with social media. And we have, um, you know, we, we've done the research on educational experiences. And I think it's at this point in time is that we're searching for that self-knowledge, that knowledge of self, um, so we can know how to approach these spaces to properly heal, right? So we can actually identify some of the issues and see the real magic, the real power happen um, outside of the systems, outside of our peers who have, um, uh, you know, may maybe misguided us or even guided us in the right direction, but it's more so becoming a personal um, experience right now. I think that we're just starting to see that happen in different spaces and places, depending on the context. And so following that, I wanna ask, so I actually switched the question up last last part, last session. Um, do you guys feel as though that there's a systemic or societal barrier to seeking our mental health, mental wellness, or is it both? I feel like I can speak to it being societal. 
Um, I'm not so sure about if it's systemic, but I don't, I don't know your experiences, so I'm just going to uh, speak from my perspective. Um, here, we, we have a, there's this saying in, in, in Chi, which is um, uh, a, a Ghanaian language, um, and it, it goes, Bema and Su, which translates, men don't cry. Um, so from when you're a child, from when you're a boy, um, it's something, if you get hurt, if you maybe if you're playing, you fall down and get hurt and you start to cry, or something happens, you want something, don't get it, and you start to cry. You are told from like when you're like three years old, men don't cry. Now, this is your mom telling you this, that men don't cry. So you, 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 you keep hearing this. You hear it being told to other children. You hear it being told to, you know, other boys, men, teenagers. And you're conditioned to think that men don't cry. So I think I can go back to about uh, four years ago when I first saw a man cry. And uh, this guy is a writer. Uh, his name is Nia Yuki Parks. He's a Ghanaian British poet. And he was reading a poem that he had written for his dad. So here's Nia sitting in front of a few people that he knew, but the majority of them were strangers. And he's reading from his book and he starts to cry, you know, because he had written this poem for his dad. And it was so strange to me that, you know, a man would be sitting in front of people crying. And I thought it was also courageous to be able to do that. And, you know, having been told that men don't cry <laughs> and believed it, you know, subconsciously for so long um, that I hadn't cried even in like over 10 years, I was, I was like, wow, you know, I was blown away and I was like, okay, I'm going to aspire to cry more, even just like even in my own personal space with nobody around, I was going to try to do that. Um, so it's, it's, it's just how we are, we are built here. Like if you, you go anywhere, African men crying, it's, it's something you, you hardly ever see. It's something you hardly ever see. There are a few videos have come out where like some guys have broken and he's crying over a girl. Um, but that's not like, that's not very common uh, to see, you know, like men cry or like men show emotion. Well, let me, emotion. let me ask, because you were saying that it's a societal thing, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Curtis and Dr. McCain, do, and you also Paige, have any of us ever, have any of us, do any of us not have the experience where we were crying and we were told that big boys don't cry? Yeah, of course. Like, well, has I, anybody not had that experience? I, no, I, I lie. I lie. It's, it's, in my experience, I've not been told that. Um, uh, in assimilating to American culture, yes. It's, it was, it was attributed to being weak. So like, I'm Haitian American, first born Haitian American, um, first generation Haitian American, parents, full-fledged Haitians, um, mom, dad. I've never heard them told me not to cry. It's not till something happened to me and I cried in school when I was told that boys don't cry or you're, you're weak because you cried. So for me, it wasn't uh, uh, 
nurturing, right? It was nature that told me it wasn't okay. Let me, but let me go into it from this standpoint where I love history. I love kind of diving in deep and getting to the why of things. So when you're looking at how we normalize that behavior of suppressing our emotions, but no one asks us what happened to our ancestors. What happened when we were showcased in front of our, our community and whipped and whipped and had to show those signs of just perseverance, but also those signs of just being, you know, somewhat quote unquote being strong and not, you know, suppressing those emotions. So being showcased in that manner, it was sort of like that was very traumatic for us. We're once again, we had to normalize that behavior. And normalizing the behavior was suppressing the emotions. Men do not cry. Men have to be very masculine. As a matter of fact, let's be hyper-masculine in, in some sense that's there. So I think, see, once again, it goes back into we have to learn how to heal. And, and once we, we begin to heal, we got to reveal. It's that scab. So you know how you got that scab and you put that Band-Aid on it and mom said, no, take the Band-Aid off because it won't heal properly or in a faster sense. So we have to really, and I think that those are some very egregious acts that occur to us where, you know, grandmom and, and, and grandpop don't really talk about it. That's there because they also don't talk about how his masculinity was taken from the slave master, which put him in the space to be hyper-masculine. So I think that with our family, it's kind of like really rattling and shaking up, like getting just really shaking up the box of saying, you know what, no, we're going to have these candid conversations that's here. You know, you got that one uncle, like why does uncle, you know, Jim, he hitting that bottle really hard. Like, yo, tell me what happened. What happened in his childhood? What happened that he is really trying to suppress those feelings with substance abuse? You know, why can't, let's go a little bit deeper. Why can't aunt such and such have children? How many of our great aunts or aunts that's currently cannot have children? So, you know what I mean? You talk about that medical apartheid that's there. So mm -hmm. I think that with our society, sometimes we don't be revealing those layers or we're uneducated about those layers. But that is the way we have to heal instead of just, I'm going to just learn how to cope with it. So for me, it is, it is systematic. I think it's uh, for myself, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, I was never put in a place or a position where I could not show my emotions. However, I think society has set up is set up in a way where men ought to look like a certain way or act a certain way or respond a certain way. If you go into different arenas, depending on if you're in the arts or if you're into where maybe um, showcasing your emotions in different ways is applauded, maybe in sports, you showcase your emotions in different ways maybe through aggression, through, you know, through your, your stamina and strength. Um, it all depends, I think, in terms of the context. But me personally, I was never in a space where I was shunned away from expressing my emotions. However, it wasn't necessarily welcome. You know, I wasn't going to sit here and say that there was an open space. Say, hey, you can you can cry, brother. You know, you can you can you can express yourself in a way. Um, and I think it's coming from um 
individuals who look like you, who can associate with the with the with the issues that you're going with going through, excuse me, and um, navigating those spaces in the proper way. And I think, you know, more importantly, you know, Dr. Curtis alluded to is in terms of, you know, the history and the history, I think, is very important in terms of being educated, you know, as a child, you know, to an ideology that reflects the, uh, you know, the ideas and the aspirations of how you want to express yourself. A big part of it is manifested on how the physical world around you is accepting it. And most in most times and most spaces and places is that we don't pay close attention to the proper care and treatment that we need to attain in order to be able to express ourselves properly and understand where it's coming from. So those physical attributes that you might be crying, yeah, not physically crying on the outside, but crying inside, as he said, hitting the bottle. And then those are significant ways of identifying where that that hurt or that pain or that you know, showcasing the emotion is coming out in different ways. And it's coming out in maybe your child's behavior. And they be saying, oh, he's just bad. No, he, maybe he's crying inside or she's crying inside or they are crying inside. And I think it's our personal ways of enduring um, certain struggles in our lives that we express it in different ways. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to identify what that is and it's showcased in, um, in ways that we um, might be see as a temper or aggression etc. So I think that it's a little bit of society, but it's also, you know, systemic in a way because the way that the world has um, embraced us and accepted us to express ourselves is um, is very staggered. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting you guys put that. I mean, I love the way there are different perspectives on this. And so I want to throw in the, a ringer, right? Um, and I think Dr. Curtis touched on this, right? These societal norms, were they originally defined for us, right? And part two of that is, are we capable of creating our own norms moving forward? I think I think we are. Um, but once again, let's be careful because we cannot use the master tools to really diminish his mansion. So we cannot think that we're going to go into their system and try to dismantle. We got to create our own. So we got to look at how can we be very um, methodic and, and kind of like, here's what we're going to do. Here's here's the new cool that's there. We're very creative people. People love our culture, our mannerisms, our dialect. They love everything about us. Just the way we have our hair and, you know, we wearing a body, we go our beers, whatever. Like they just love just our whole entire vibe, our aura. So I think that we're very influential people. I think that we can, but it has to be really continuity as a culture. That That's the key right there. We can't look at it like, oh, you know, you want some old go back to Africa stuff and I don't, you know, bang with you. And we got to just like this, like, uh, you know, you guys mentioned earlier, we really have to unlearn what we learned in, in school and in our society. But it can happen. And, and I want to piggyback. I, go ahead. Okay. No, no, I was, no, I was just going to go ahead. Cope. No, I, I've been talking too much. Go ahead, Cope. I'm going to let you talk. Right, well, I just wanted to really piggyback off of that because I feel like only in the mo like I just felt in the moment that I needed to say because I, I was like I, I was like literally spiritually feeling what you were saying, Dr. Curtis. But I want to point out where we are. And mm -hmm. I, I love the positivity that even though as we are suffering as black men, we are seeing the growth and 
I feel like, and I agree a hundred percent that the way to take this down, and this is why I, I wanted to jump in because I agree a hundred percent. You can't use the master's tools to take down his whatever. Now you can use the master's tools to go get more resources. So I'm okay with that, but I really and truly believe that what we're doing in this space is we are making our black men open again to our community so that our community can come to us, not just in times of war, but open like, and so that we can actually have community and we can actually be with our community as human beings. Because the thing that we need to do is what we're doing now is the communication, but it has to spread to our whole entire community. Our black men here in America have to talk with our black women. Our black men here in America have to talk with our black men in Africa and in the Netherlands. We have to be coming back together because the splintering is their plan. But if we can undo the splintering, then whatever we do within the system is just gonna be icing on the cake. I yield my time. <laughs> and, and, and that's important, right? And if you look at the panel today, we are encompassing di diaspora, right? Um, we are we are within the diaspora of all experiencing some of these things. But had we not had Brother Benjamin on the on the call, we wouldn't have understand his perspective, right? Absolutely. Um, for the longest, and I'm just gonna speak from my experience and from what I've heard around me there's there's a sentiment about Africans coming to United States feeling better than the Americans, Black Americans, right? But then there's a sentiment of Africans coming into the United States feeling like the Black Americans feel like they're better than the Africans, right? So there's been, I think to Copeland's point, a, a systemic slash social construct put in place to make it such that the brothers and sisters from the same country or the same continent are at constant battle against each other. And to make it worse, it sounds like we're in battle together for resources in both continents, right? Benjamin mentioned we can go over there and make three times as much, right? Copeland mentioned that they can come over here and deal with the... Um, the uh um they play the game better out here right they're right able to maintain their cohesion right and so being able to so there's a there's a common front it's us versus them right and it's us versus us and it's them versus us at what point is it going to be like a united front like kurt said earlier right one of the biggest things that we have to kind of define is we know we run the coach right whether it's hip-hop whether it's uk drill whether it's um afro beats whether it's reggae calypso soca we run in it right if you look at so if you look at advertisement today they are taking from our culture to capitalize on it. so well, that is, the, the, the last thing i'll say real quick is just that the reason why a lot of this is happening is because everywhere that we have a gap in between each other is a place for them to implement something that's going to one widen the gap but then pre create some sort of a siphon of whatever the resources whether they be talent or actual tangible resources out of our community so i 
it, it's it's the spaces that we have in between them. If we were to close the gaps in spaces, we would be able to not only be successful and be talented and run these in industries as far as the talent, but we would be able to actually run the industry and not just the essence of the industry. Hmm. But, but it's just like what um, Dr. McKen said, knowledge of self. Because um, I, I work with children and a lot of us do. And like I had a discussion with um, some of my students that I'm working with down Southwest Philadelphia. And we, we touched a little bit on cornrows and they were totally clueless on the historical aspects of where they originated from. They, I, no, Alan Iverson, that was it. And they like, you know, we just do it because of the style. So that leads right into the miseducation. They don't know that it's, it's in their ancestry, it's in their blood. It's uh, these pockets of division. So when we meet someone from the continent of Africa, we like, you know, you're separate. You're not, you're not us, we're American. And who are you? And why is your complexion so dark that's there? You know, so it goes into that miseducation. And I think that it takes us as courageous and, and fearless black men to go back, to go back in the community, to be able to educate and to heal our communities and understand that, no, we're, we're one. And we're going to teach you, okay, how do we dismantle? How do we dismantle this system that's there? Because I really believe on, it's really the miseducation, especially when you, you hear, you know, oh, Ghana is in the Middle East. That's the miseducation. And the thing is, it's not taught in our schools, but then it's not taught at home and not blaming parents because when you know better, you do better. Mm. But it is up to that population of, of, like I said, strong. And when I think of strong black men, I'm thinking more of just being candid and courageous. That's what I'm saying, to go back home. Not say, you know what I mean? I got my letters and, <laughs> you know, I'll see y'all later and I'm going to the Ivory Tower. It's like, no, let's go back and, and recognize who you are and where you come from. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in about that conversation with the about the cornrows you had with your students, because historically, um, in, in parts of Ghana, at least, um, a lot of men had their hair like pages. So, but if you come to Ghana today, um, it's not the norm. If, if Paige were in Ghana and were Ghanaian and had this hair, then he'd be stopped a lot by the police because Apparently, people with like dreadlocks are like viewed as, uh, you know, like a, like bad people in society. Right. But this is this is a perception that we have, and it's from colonization. Um, but before this, men had their hair like that. Like, if you had your hair like that, you were strong. You were like a warrior. You know, you were you were someone to be to be feared. Um, but it's it's not the case anymore because of you know this miseducation and. Because of the same miseducation, a lot of um, Africans are not able to trust each other. Um, and I, I was quite, um, I was having a conversation with, with Cope, quite surprised uh, when he said, you know, you can like, oh no, I, I think it was Aladi when he said you could like nod at another black man and he would like not nod back. Right. It's something I've seen in Europe and it surprised me because, and I, I would say to people, this will never happen in the States, <laughs> right? Um, so I was surprised. It happens. It happens a lot. Yeah. I was surprised. Especially in Philly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so surprised because I've I've had a nod with a white woman before, 
Yeah. And it, it made my day, and I'll tell you how it happened. So there was a bridge, right, with, um, and then there was like a cycle path. So I'm walking on this place, uh, on this pavement, and she's coming towards me with her, with her baby, right, in a stroller. Um, and immediately I just like walk off into the bike path so she can come by, right? And I'm just like, you know, just, just come through. And she just like acknowledged that with a nod. And then I just like nodded back. But I have also, um, on the other hand, seen black men in the streets here, giving them a nod, and they have looked at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> so, um, and, and there's something powerful about that nod. You know, it's like when I get a nod from someone in the streets, it makes my entire day. It's it's that it's just so powerful for me. Um, it's it's like I see you, I understand your struggle, you know, and it's just saying so many things in one single simple gesture. And unfortunately for us, we're just like not able to come together sometimes. And I feel like that has been the reason we have continued to um, collectively fail. Um, because individually, we've got like some very great people, right? Some very great, great people, uh, LeBron, Obama, great people. But I feel like there's just so much more potential uh, to come from us that we are just not tapping into because of misinformation and miseducation. And um, yeah, we definitely do need to, to come together. And it's also, again, one of the reasons I love Omex so much because it creates that space of trust. So people come together and like are able to like collaborate on, on certain things that, you know, in a way that they would not previously have had the agency to do. So yeah, that I'm, I'm just going on, but. <laughs> so, so I want to, I want to talk to that real quick. Um, uh, what part? So I was pulled over. I was questioned by plainclothes police in Germany wearing this exact outfit, right? Waiting at the bus stop, going to my next destination. I'm on a call. I'm clearly speaking English. They asked me for my papers, right? And I'm thinking, well, I'm speaking English. I, you know, I'm just chilling. I'm not doing anything. So I kind of dismissed it the first time they asked me, right? <laughs> thinking of, I'm, I'm on the phone, leave me alone. Um, yeah. American privilege, I will say that, right? Uh -huh. um, and then they asked me again, and you know, at this point they were serious, pulled out their badge. And they were like, well, we have a lot of refugees pretending to be American, pretending to be this, that, and the other. So I was kind of like taken back and had to realize it was like, you know, part of my friendship, this shit happens everywhere. Like, I don't think I've been overtly profiled in the United States, right? Um, and I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones, right? But it's it was weird to get that experience. And the crazy part about it was I was with five Black women who rushed. When I say rushed, rushed to my defense, one of which spoke pure German and was trying to and berating the police officers trying to understand why are they bothering me what's going on and so it's 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 crazy to see that this happens elsewhere and you know the the next part of this conversation is going to be the influence that our the women in our lives have in our mental health 
So I, I definitely see what you're talking about there. I know I took it on a tangent, but we're going to bring it back. Um, so, so with that being said, um, these systems or the societal norms, right? How do we change that for the next generation? I know, Kurt, you're working on that through your trauma-based curriculum. And a lot of you're focused on that in the higher level, higher education plane, right? Like, what's the next step for the next generation? Because our next generation of men need an example because I don't know about y'all, but I didn't have the greatest of examples growing up. I love my dad to death, but I didn't have the greatest of examples, right? And I can't speak for everyone's on this panel, but my example was struggle, work hard, and kind of accumulate not as much, right? Whereas I'm trying to set the example of work smart, not hard, accumulate generational wealth, trying to break that barrier. Right, like what do you guys think is the next step? Because some of us are really trying to figure it out as we go. Well, as a person that's stumbling down the stairs as we speak, um, you know, I will say that I hear what you're saying. I feel almost the same way, except that I feel like that was a good example because our parents are like, first off, the universe has a funny like a sense of humor because at the level of intelligence that we are at like me and you personally to to have first generation immigrants come here and have to not only be trying to assimilate with american culture and whatnot but now to have a child who was born in american culture who's intelligent enough to assimilate a lot faster than they are like it's almost unfair but i look at my dad and my dad was the same way he was a hard worker, but in his hard work, he knew that he didn't want to work hard, but he had to. So he wanted to make it better for me. And so he was trying to push education as the way for me. And I appreciate that and respect that. And now for my son, I understand that as smart as this kid is, it's going to be almost impossible for him to grow up and not be educated. So what's his next step? And his next step for me is understanding your strength, power, and intelligence and turning that and being a protector of the community. Like you are now a pillar now. Like you're, you're, that's your goal. Everything else don't, like that's all a given. Like you don't have to work harder anymore because your dad understands the, that he watched his father work hard. So now he understands the work smarter, not harder. You don't have to worry about education because if you ever see the things these kids are watching on the tablets, you know, like my my son is a three-year-old telling people what a dodecahedron is. Like, it's amazing. But what it is that we have to, I believe, instill in our children is that connection because it's the connectivity that creates the community. So the seeing everybody as a human and treating and respecting everybody as a human, understanding that power is used not for gain but for protection and service so that's kind of like that's what my that's what i'm doing and like you said i'm figuring it out as i go along so i don't know if that's the right path but it's the one i'm willing to die on my sword on oh i yield my time sorry <laughs> anybody else what's what's next what's what's the next path 
you know, um, um, I feel like the conversation, at least in the States, is a little more advanced uh, than back home. Um, there are a few um, therapists. Uh, I think there's one lady called Thrive. She's got an Instagram page called Thrive GH. Um, you know, so there's a few people trying to like just not even just with men, but with women as well, just like to let them know that it's okay to be vulnerable, that it's okay to give yourself a break. But we are so far behind in this conversation back home that I don't know, it, it almost feels like it's going to be decades before um, we can actually start to address uh, mental health in, in, in black men. Um, but me, me, Parks, like I was, I was mentioning him earlier. He's like one of those few like ac academics slash um, writers or creatives who are actively trying to address um, some of these things. But it's it's just not the same. Like mm -hmm. I know it's not a lot in the states, but it's even worse <laughs> back here because if I'm not if I'm not wrong, I think suicide is a crime in Ghana. If I'm not wrong, so. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you try to commit suicide, make sure you die. Because if you don't, you're going to be arrested. We don't have like, um, we've got, a, we've got a, 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 call it a mental hospital, but it's, it's not really, the ad advancement is not really there. And it's not, the topic is not something that has been identified as important enough, you know, that, that we have it. So it's, from my side, this is how it is. And I only started to t think about this two years ago um, when a friend of mine committed suicide. Um, so that's when I started to really think about this and when I started to question my own self. Um, so currently what I'm doing is that, well, I wrote the poem, I wrote the article, and I've been thinking what to do next, uh, like you were asking, Paige. And I'm like, okay, maybe I could, I could start with like writing a blog. I could start with just like, creating that awareness because now what we have to do or what I have to do or people like me who are interested in the topic have to do is start to create that awareness around mental health and around uh, vulnerability and why it's okay to be vulnerable as a black man. And, and you know, wanted to chime in with real quick and I think it's kind of what this platform is about, right? Like myself and Ashley are more than happy to join that journey with you. And I believe the gentlemen on here in past episodes um, are more than happy to join that journey with you. We will help facilitate, organize. Um, you know, we all have understanding of our roots or where our roots come back from, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, in, in this scenario, Ghana would be the first step, right? I yeah. mean, we have so many other nations to touch on, but I think if we can shine light on one area or or multiple at once, right? And I, I think with the connection with Omec, Chemo has a connection with so many different people from so many different places where this platform can expand beyond the reaches of the United States, right? You are yeah. bridging that gap for us and allowing us to be able to set up this platform where we can go back to Chemo and set something up where we could find chiefs from different villages in Ghana and try to have the conversation of getting an understanding where they're at, right? Um, I think brothers like Curtis, um, Alade, um, uh, 
uh, from last week. Um, Ted, um, uh, what's what's um, what was his name again? Julian, right? Julian and Dev, um, and then so many more brothers and sisters that have been on this platform. So you, this is an example of you're not alone. Like right. I got chills right now, really just thinking <laughs> about it. And you are not alone, right? Like everyone yeah. understands that it's not that you guys are far behind. It's mm -hmm. just that the support isn't there. Yeah, the and, support and, isn't. It isn't. Uh, and I think it just has to do with uh, levels of um, development because if if you are faced with before I had to think about mental health, or I I knew that I had to see a therapist about. 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but it was not so important to me because I'm like, I need to get my hustle on. I need to make money. I need to move out of my folks house. I need to get my car. So it's, it's kind of relegated. It's not, it's not that, um, it's, it's there, but it's, it's not prioritized, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's basically where it's at. And, I'm speaking, I suppose, also for maybe five to ten percent of the population, because um, for in in our local languages, I'm not sure if we've got a word for mental health. I'm not so sure. I may be wrong, but I'm not sure. So it's mm -hmm. there's a lot. <laughs> there's so a lot. before you pass it on, I want to ask you, and I want to ask the other panelists because. You say that sometimes we put it to the back because there are other things that we have to deal with. So let's attack it directly. And I want to ask you, like, why is it okay for a black man to be vulnerable? Like, I feel like if we want people to start believing this, we have to start practicing being a. Because I don't. I'm gonna be honest with you. I just thought of it as you said it. So I don't have an answer yet. And I'm, of course, I'm gonna go last so that I can think of my answer while y'all are talking. <laughs> but I would throw it back to you first. <laughs> <laughs> right um uh, i think that for me uh or my, my own personal experiences the first time i started to think that i should share something or share things with people was in 2016 i just graduated from my undergrad and um life was not going the way i wanted it to go because i had all these ideas i was going to do my master's right after um you know it's just i had these ideas to like travel do this and then come back home and like you know just make a life for myself and things weren't going so great um so there was a point where i was so frustrated but the thing is growing up um speaking about your pain or speaking um back to adults it's not ingrained in you you're not nurtured nurtured with that if you do that it's called disrespect so if you paid with my dad and you did something wrong to me and I spoke back at you or like asked you, why should I sleep at 9 p.m., for instance, and argued with you about that, it would be because I was a bad boy or that I was disrespectful. So you grew, you, you grew up internalizing a lot of things. And so I was feeling all these emotions and at the time was not really speaking to people about them. And so there was this very split second or half a split second, I don't know how that short is, but <laughs> suicide just like flashed across my brain and I was scared shitless. 
So from that, that's also probably why I'm talking a lot because I'm like, from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to overshare because I never want to think about this again. <laughs> I never wanted to ever cross my mind. Um, so that's, that's how my, you know, being vulnerable to people started because I just never wanted to be in that position again, because I was like, what if it becomes a serious thought, hmm. you know, and that really scared me. So, um, you know, fast forward two years later, I was supposed to meet with a friend and, um, so it was a Monday and I was supposed to meet him on a Thursday and I'd hang out with him a few times. Um, he was like an older brother to me. And then he was just not, you know, answering the phone when I, you know, I called him when I sent him texts or no responses, but that was kind of normal in our relationship because we would just like not speak for a while and then come back and just like catch up. And it was great again. And it was, it was such an amazing friendship. So I just go someplace uh, where I know he used to hang out sometimes and find out that he had died and been buried, that he had committed suicide. And I had not a hint from him that he was going through something because I thought, I thought he was doing great in life. I thought I want to be like this guy. Um, but apparently he was not satisfied with his life. Um, you know, from the snippets I've heard about from people around and now he's gone, you know? So for me, like being able to come out here and talk about mental health, it's because of him, you know, it's because of that loss because, uh, for a long time, I was like, I've been the person that has to be responsible, the person that people look up to for things. And so when I found someone I could look up to and that I liked, that I could relate to, you know, that made me feel like I had a big brother for the first time in my life. I was, I was, I was thrilled. And, you know, so like him not being here and every year that passes, I think about him, you know, because there are set the, I would speak to him about my achievements, like everything. So whenever I achieve something, it's hard because I'm happy that I've done it. I'm proud, but I'm also sad because I cannot share with him. And so that's why I'm like able to be vulnerable, why I feel like it's something I want to talk about. Hmm. Hmm. I think for the school setting is, is sort of like, going back to when David fled and, and he fled from King Saul and he went into that cave of Adullam. And, and when I think of that cave, it's like, that's where I'm at right now. And this is, this is my man cave. And the man cave is where we had these candid conversations and we really are in a state of vulnerability. So it's, it's kind of using, so when David was in there, he also had a number of men that he galvanized that came in there and he built like this phenomenal, like, like troop of warriors, you know, that came out of there. So I kind of use that story in the sense of let's go for those alpha males, those alpha females inside the school setting. Let's get them. Let's first, we know how influential the football team is, right? And the basketball team has the swag. Let's go after the football team players and really start to help them to really process, process and make them aware of their emotions, but then also make it cool where it's cool to be vulnerable. Now, you galvanize that group of children and you say, you know, let's go make this change in our school culture. Because we understand that I can go in there and, and try to motivate and inspire the kids, but my students are going to listen to their peers first before they listen to me. 
So they know that, okay, if I can be able to go and talk to the football team and, you know, really develop a state of vulnerability with them on saying that mental wellness, I don't like mental illness because that's like something that's totally wrong with us and it's nothing wrong with me. It's a state of denial. But let's talk about mental wellness and bringing awareness of it. And, And then let's have those spaces that we can talk about Meek Mill's name, you know, Name, name the song named Trauma, and let's talk about it. Let's dive into it. And then we're going to talk about, you know what, Grandmaster Flash, and it's like a jungle. Let's go back to our generation. And, you know, and what we'll find is that a lot of the kids will really say, yo, I really like y'all era of music. They, they really do. And, and they'll say, you know what, okay, now you have my ear. What do we need to do? So now, okay, I'm listening to you. Okay, so how do I do this when my friends are dissing me? or my papa at home is not trying to hear it, or my mom is stressed out. And I think having those spaces of really building the next generation, next generation, I think you start at, you can't you can start at middle school, but I think what has the most magnitude of impact is the teenagers, the teenagers right there. I think when building that next generation, but then also too, there's a great brother, um, LaDante Bell, I want to give him a shout out, man. He's a football coach at Chester High School in Pennsylvania. And when he creates these soldiers, these soldiers, he also drives them home and helping them to keep safe versus walking through dangerous neighborhoods. So it's like if we create these velour men, we also have to protect them as well. That's there. So I, I think it can happen. I think we need to go back, you know, and and really just reconnect with our youth. It's wonderful. You know, I think for me personally, I think it's uh, going back to the uh, Audre Lorde quote that we all mentioned earlier, you can't dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools. And I think what's next is reclaiming our stolen tools. Um, I think it's a big thing we think about um, these false contents, uh, you know, this false uh, consensus that left out, you know, certain voices, particularly, you know, black men voices from um, being a part of the narrative to overturn the issues around surrounding our mental health. So if we are going to like draft a ethical principle that will overthrow the status quo of, you know, what we think it could be useful to justify um and help our oppression you know what does it mean for us to really examine the issues around mental health right and i hear the word vulnerable you use a lot right but i think when we think about the masses tools those tools those are one of the tools they think about the things that were being used against us to oppress us those are the same things that are still being used today to oppress us. So when we become vulnerable, we become open, we, we share our secrets, it's opening, in a, opening us up to essentially attack, you know, in some cases. So like Dr. Curtis said, it's like, you know, when, we, when we're trying to build, we also have to protect, right? It's, it's about really thinking about those narrow perimeters of change and in, in the possibilities that are allowable in these particular spaces. And everything is... Um, you know, we have to think about these things deeply because 
when we open ourselves, and that's why a lot of brothers that I know that I communicate with are not open because they are when they open themselves up, they're opening themselves up for attack, right? And there's, you know, anthropological, archaeological, philosophical, historical evidence that shows that, you know, these tools that we developed that they stole from us was used against us and, and later appropriated to suppress us. So how can we get back to that space where we're going back to this and this, these ways of knowing where we can grow, heal, but also protect? So it's thinking about how can we protect ourselves as we open ourselves up for healing, right? And that's a big component, um, I think, is, is very, very important, right? Because everybody's like, you need to express yourself. You need to speak. You need to cry. But then some people attacked, you know, when you open up yourself to those spaces. So it's just something for, to, to, to add to the conversation um, in thinking about how are we protecting ourselves as well as we're opening ourselves up for healing. So that's that's a good point. If you look at Willie Everett's comments in the chat, you know, I don't feel like feeling vulnerable, especially not in front of women in my life, right? I mean, you know, the women that loves us wants to do just that, right? They want to protect us. But the thing is, we run into a situation where it's been weaponized against us so many times in our past that it's harder for us to break that, that fear, right? Um, Dr. McKinnon and Dr. Curtis, you guys are, are both married, correct? You guys have overcome that fear. Like, if you guys don't mind sharing, how did you guys individually overcome that to trust your, your, your counterpart to protect you in those times of vulnerability? I mean, you don't have to go too personal, but I think it would give it would give some of us some perspective into that, right? Because to get to the point of the I do's and your individual vows, right? You guys had to get to a point where you realize this woman will protect me for the rest of my life. I, I think just having the conversation, like, okay, if you want me to tap into my emotions then you have to have an active listening ear. And being an active listening ear doesn't mean that you're only listening to come with a response, but you're listening and then you're processing everything. So if, if and you kind of articulate in the sense of, okay, if I am allowed to have this space to do that, that will help me to be more empathetic and geared towards your needs. But if you suppress my feelings, you're gonna hinder really my empathy towards you. So when you try to tap into emotions and express yourself, it's really going through one ear and not the other, or I may not be paying attention because you have created a space where being vulnerable is not accepted. So then you ask the question, which one do you want? Uh, I would have to say, uh, you know, if I can say is that being open to your partner is, um, is sometimes can be challenging and it can be challenging in a way where you have to understand that they are also coming with their issues and their preconceived notions and their history and, and their uh um the way they're situated in, in their upbringing so it's you know when you are you know you're 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 confiding with someone who is your partner 
you're you're coming with your baggage, they're coming with their baggage, and you're both healing at the same time. So there's a lot of uh, assumptions that might come with you know the approach on how you need to do that. But you have to be very open and honest about why and um, you're feeling these ways of feeling this way, or or, or why, how you're trying to navigate it because your approach might be completely different from hers. Um, so it's always um, very complex in a way, but it takes a lot of communication. And the communication, you have to definitely be open and be vulnerable to have a deeper understanding of who you are and how you're coming and showing up to the space. And they have to do the same as well. So they can receive the information, as uh, Dr. Curtis said, in terms of having that attentive ear, but more so having a compassion heart, right? Because they're receiving messages and it has to be internalized and then, you know, essentially received in a way of uh, comprehension. You can hear someone, but it's comprehending and understanding is a whole different, you know, another ball game. But I think it takes time and dedication, appreciation, <laughs> love, and sometimes life, you know, and, and that's the thing is these things are embedded um, deeply within us and we have to find ways to express them in, in a healthy way so we can receive them and assist each other on the journey as long as we're on the same path. Well, I think you added another layer to it, though, kind of in there, and it's the trust factor. And I think that I think it's almost sometimes for a single person as such as myself, you think that when people are in marriages, then that trust should be a given because you're trusting like, I mean, let's be serious. You're sleeping with this person every night, like you're going to sleep next to this person every night. Like it doesn't take much to kill a person in their sleep. So that's just a certain level of trust that every single day you decide to trust this person with your sleeping body. <laughs> but it, it's also a necessary thing that we have to start developing community-wide as well, where it doesn't require any type of relations in order for the trust to exist, except for the relation of the relationship that you have. Like I have friends and I know that I trust my friends to where I can talk to my friends. Like I realize more and more as we go along that I do vent and I have friends that I know that I can vent to. And I have people I know that get in the way when it's time for me to vent and I end up accidentally venting to them, but they'd be the wrong people because I always end up calling a lot of afterwards. And he always <laughs> says to me, you're always talking to the wrong people. Yeah. But I think that we also, but we have to, we have to, Somebody, I was just reading the comments also, which is why my eyes were going up and down. And one of, and two things were said that were very important. One is that the safe space has to be held for the men because we as men, if we have to hold that space to be vulnerable, we're doing it with swords. So now the space is not actually safe, but it's a potential battleground at all times. So that's what, so we're asking for the women to enact their power in creating this safe space for us to be vulnerable. But then there's also was the point being made of after we're done being, being vulnerable for that vulnerable time to not be perverted and for us to be allowed to leave that vulnerable time and go back to slaying dragons without somebody telling us that we were crying just a few minutes ago. Like I'm trying to get rid of, I'm trying to get rid of the dragon underneath the, underneath the castle right now. Like, I don't need to hear that. So that trust factor and the trust one that you can do that without that coming back is very big. And it's what I'm I'm believing that I'm hearing that is being asked for 
you know, if our women are still out there asking us what we need. But I think one thing I want to mention too, again, just to kind of go back to the attentive ear, which is, I think it's super important because, because the, the tongue, the mouth, the voice, the words are instructions, right? And sometimes they might not come out so clear. You know, some people might have to read between the lines to understand what's actually being said, or you might just be speaking another language. But there's some words and some instructions. There's pain, there's feelings, there's emotions that come behind that, right? And the 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 one thing that I, that was mentioned too that I think was super important is is is, is the the faith, the faithful, the faithful heart, like to being open and to receive. I think a lot of people have to be open to receiving and understand and have the faith that this individual, you know, is going. I can express myself to this person. This person is going to receive me as well. And then also understand that that those words that that moment that sense of vulnerability is always going to be protected right you know i could deposit it you know in my heart and 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 work with you and work with us together to learn from one another and i think that's a big part of it as well it's just that faith that that love that that um companionship that comes with being vulnerable as well you know there's there's so many layers and parts to it right so it's so it's just it's, it's but, but what you're saying um copeland is is very important in terms of holding this space right but holding it in a way where you know we can come and go and as we please because i think a part of healing is trying to understand what you're saying how you're saying and you know digging deeply deeply into yourself and not you know someone trying to dig deep within you to try to get out what you're trying to figure out yourself because what happens they dig in deep in you and they pull out something that they can't understand and then they judge you upon it. Right. That happens as well. So it's just being vulnerable. is very tricky. Um, and it leaves a lot of um, room for some things to go left, you know, just to just to say that. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, the first session, um, one of the brothers mentioned not to dump. Right. Like you got to know the strength of the person that you're dealing with. Right. Some people you can piecemeal the information. Some people you could provide larger scoops. Right. And so I think to Lade's point is like being able to understand the person that you're dealing with's ability to consume and deal with the information that you're providing. Right. Like, um, and that's from both sides. Right. Like, I remember the hardest thing to have to deal with in my past relationships was someone having gone through a traumatic experience as a child right it's like all right how do i and once again this is also something that i've learned through this platform is i was doing my best to avoid triggering her, right but I, I i was taught or told that it's not my job to worry about her triggers but my job to be mindful of them right and I don't know exactly what will trigger her. It's just, just be sensitive to the fact that these are things that has impacted her in the past, right? And so with that being said, you know, it's, it's important that we understand our mates, right? To the point where to just being vulnerable doesn't equate to being safe, mm-hmm. right? Um, being vulnerable is just one part. And I think you guys all hit it on the head is, knowing the person enough to share that information 
and know that they will be able to handle what you've provided them. Because the last thing you want to do is drop a bomb on the person and you've now added more stress onto that person because they were, because they want to protect you, they're actively trying to figure out how to, I don't want to say fix the situation, but make it so comfortable for you that they stress themselves out. You know, and so we just got to be mindful of the information we share, how we share it. I'm not saying hold it all in, but we got to know the strengths and the abilities of the people that we're with. And that's both sides, right? I think some women know that some men can't deal with that they've been sexually assaulted, right? So all women aren't going to be open to share that with men, right? You have to be a different type of dude to understand that and deal with it accordingly. And some women can't hear that a man's been sexually assaulted and deal with that in an appropriate way, right? So I think we just got to be mindful of the people that we're dealing with and sharing in due time, unfortunately, right? Like sharing pieces of us that we know that in the times that we share it, that our partners are able to kind of deal with it. Um, and, and so Kurt coming from a trauma perspective, right? Um, how do we, and, and not just the trauma perspective, but the historical perspective, how do we unite the family back as black men? I mean, I think just going back to some traditional old school ways of just like, going and, and visiting relatives and especially our aunts, our grandmothers and our mothers and holding their hand, sitting down on the couch and holding their hand as a sense of, of comfort and kind of really sharing to them just the importance of reuniting the family. Um, and then when it comes to our men in the family, meeting them where they're at, wherever they're at. Um, if you have to go out to a sports bar and watch the, the Eagles game and just to have those conversations like, hey, you know what? I really miss miss you coming over. I, I really miss, you know, Sunday dinners. Um, let's look at, can you help me? Can you help me to figure out how we can create a space to reunite those things? Um, it just takes some time, some times and really reconnecting, reconnecting with family and creating just game night, pulling out that Monopoly board and, you know, just doing some old school things. Remember we used to do fish fries and rent parties and come on now you you know what i mean just let's get back to the basics and sell platters out of the house and put some some luther on and just you know what i mean just bring back those those old moments where it's sort of like you know what well i missed this and it's like yo we're gonna do it again and but there are times that i have invited friends and and, and brothers and uncles to just be out in the backyard or just be in front of the garage and just create a circle and just have some libations and just rap, you know? And, and when we rap and it's more like, it's not, how are you doing? But it's like, how are you sleeping? You know mm -hmm. I mean, how's your sleeping? How's, how's, how's your, how are you eating? You know what I mean? Are you able to eat? You know, are you able to rest? Um, you know, just, just, you know, what's weighing real heavy on your heart and your mind that you feel as though you cannot release. So it's more like going deeper in those probing questions because 
once again, you gotta if you create the space that's nurturing and supportive, family will come back and reunite. You just have to be very intentional. Now, I know I directed this towards Dr. Curtis. Um, I want Alade and Benjamin to talk on it, but um, you know, uh, yeah, I want you guys to kind of touch on it as well. Yeah, I think you go, Benjamin. I know we've been talking. Yeah. Uh, so, Benjamin, I, I want to kind of take you to a different place, right? All right. Um, all right. So, you generally are coming from a traditional African community and vibe, right? Where men and women talk purposefully, right? Like, you know, there are gender roles. There are, you children can talk to parents only when talked to. You can't talk back, right? Similar to here, but I think like you'll get smacked real quick. <laughs> Faster, faster over there than you'll probably do it here because we got CPS and all that craziness. But yeah. I, I, I want to kind of get your, you know, idea of what you think can, from your perspective, strengthen the family again. Or not again, but strengthen it now that you have a dip, different perspective. Yeah. Uh, the the one thing that I, I will say is. Um, Family is such a strong um, unit of life uh, back home that uh, your your auntie is going to be up in your business asking when you're getting married, um, <laughs> asking when you're, you're going to have babies, you know, and it's a bit toxic, but that's this family. Family is just so important to people. Um, and on the, on the flip side, and I know it's not like, the same in maybe Southern Africa, but in, in West Africa, being like a single parent, it's, it's not, it's kind of frowned upon, kind of. Um, whereas in, in Southern Africa, I know it's really, it's, it's normal and it's accepted and, you know, but um, the one thing that I would say is that if I were a parent, I would encourage my, my children to speak to me. Uh, you know, I would, I would give them agency to be able to to just say what's on their mind, to tell me what they want, to tell me why I'm wrong, where they think I am wrong. You know, I would apologize when I am wrong. And I think that's something that parents hardly ever do is when they realize that they're wrong, they just go quiet and then the conversation moves on. And so you have children growing up for 20 plus years and they don't even know how to apologize to their girlfriends or to their wives because your dad never apologized to them when he was wrong. So that's where I would change things, you know, in the family. But pretty much in, in certain communities, when you when you go there, you know, we've got something called by the fireside where people just like come together and tell stories. Um, you know, you learn about, you know, our history is not really written down. It's, it's passed on orally, you know, predominantly. So Telling stories is, is, is a huge thing in, in families. Um, you know, inviting people over for for a Sunday lunch, you know, for like fufu or something like that. You know, it's it's pretty it's stronger here, I, I would say. Um, I mean, I say here, but I'm in the Netherlands. Stronger in, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I I don't really have too much to say except that I would love for parents to to be friends with their children. I think that's a key thing. That that would strengthen definitely families better. 
Yeah, I, I think just to jump in, um, I think it's uh, you both mentioned some great things, and some tools to get back to, you know, a sense of self. But I think really is what's going on inside you definitely needs to be expressed. It needs to be an open space to express. I think everyone has mentioned that before. But I think more importantly, um, to the old school way of doing things and the indigenous ways of doing things and building back, you know, the sense of nation building and the community and the sense of agency that was around you know, in our history, you know, you know, from freedom schools to places where we're, you know, civil rights movements, et cetera. You know, there were spaces and places where we got together for a common cause. So it's really just approaching, you know, ourselves and our families, you know, looking internally to saying like, what is our cause? What is our ideology? What is our mission? What is our vision? What, is, what are we, what are we about as a people, you know, as friends, as a community? you know, as brothers, um, you know, whatever organizations we're a part of or, you know, school systems we're a part of, what is the what is the what is the goal? How can we move together? I think that sense of togetherness, the the sense of community, the you know, the holding the hands and, you know, lifting each other up and, you know, really watching over each other and protecting each other and then expanding that outward is going to be the tool that we use in order to, you know, sustain some type of, you know, abundance in our, in our lives. I think those are the things that I deeply think about and trying to make sure that you emulate these things and not, and not promote them in a way where, you know, it's for, you know, social media purposes, but like really be authentic, be true to yourself um, and really know who you are. Right. It's just like really do that soul search and digging deeply within um, so you could be able to show up to the party, right? Knowing that you are um, hold an intricate role and you're a part of uh, a, a larger movement, a larger system and structure that is really based on the foundations that you all came together together. And rather than you know speaking out to the world and the world speaking back to you, you don't have an answer. Then the world tells you what who you are and what you're going to be and tell you how to walk and talk and, and move, which is essentially happening now, right? We're looking for it. And we're just finding it in the wrong places, right? We're looking at those things that, you know, are not necessarily essentially attached to us. So it's just about finding uh, the root of, you know, who you are by looking behind you, you know, this whole Sankofa mentality, looking into your history, as Dr. Curtis um, alluded to in terms of just understanding where we've come, where we are, and where do we want to go, you know, and if you just start there. Super dope, super dope. Like, I, I like what everybody said, and um, you know, Benjamin actually hit it on the head. Our stories are told through word of mouth, through communication, right? Um, we are so used to them telling history that we are not telling our story. And the more we communicate with our grandparents, aunties, and uncles, like Kurt said, like we can pass down. Like, how many of us really know? our family medical history. How many of us know what which parents have what conditions in their backgrounds? We don't, right? Because some of these things aren't passed down because they they are embarrassed, right? And what we're trying to do is break that barrier. We're trying to break the barrier of, you know what? I want my great-great-grandchildren to know I suffer from uh, you know, bipolar, depression, or what might have you, because they might have an understanding of why they're feeling the way they're feeling. 
right? Um, and that's what we're trying to do, make sure that these conversations can be had. You know, the, I think everyone here mentioned the power of the words, right? The power of the words that come out of our mouths are important. And they trans, they, they go through generations. And so I appreciate you all for really jumping on because this conversation alone, we went from the talking about the mental health of the black men as being one that's developing and growing, right? Um, we talked about that the barriers to our wellness is systematic as well as societal, depending on where you're from. We've talked about moving forward in changing the future by addressing certain certain age groups because they'll be more influential than those behind them. You know, we talked about being vulnerable with our women, right? And then we talk about the strengthening in the family. I think in this conversation alone, we've hit a lot of things that I think can always continue as conversations and actions that we can all take forward. I don't think anything that was discussed in this conversation are um, unattainable, right? It, it all boils down to how do we communicate with one another to make sure that we're all on, the, all on the same page. We're all fighting the same cause, right? And so with that being said, um, I wanted to know if you guys have any final remarks to leave the audience with um, to kind of like leave them aspiring that us as black men are growing and we can do better. I'll start. Okay. I'll start. I'll just start real quick. Um, our goal here is get my cheese back on my crackers to help everyone get their cheese back on their crackers. Um, let's protect our peace, right? We are all, we are not all one piece to a puzzle. We have multiple pieces to us and we have to protect our peace by finding safe spaces that we are able to heal within. If we can't heal within safe spaces, then it's almost impossible for us to heal. So we have to create these safe spaces and getting my cheese back on my cracker is one of the same spaces that we are trying to create for our community so that we can be better. And I'll just say, Paige, thank you for platforms like this. You know, and I think are very essential and, you know, it kind of begins the conversation, but then also let's see how we can take this into other spaces of really just, just really having that dialogue. Okay, what do we do now? What do we do now? So I think for our audience is that, you know, begin to have those conversations and just in the comfort of your home. You know, what does that look like? You know, let's first start off where instead of saying, how are you doing? Let's ask deeper questions. You know, yeah. how are you sleeping? How's your health? How's your diet? You know, how's, you know, how's everything, your access to, uh, to food? You know, if you're living in a food desert, that's there. So I think asking those more deeper level probing questions is where we can kind of begin. Yeah, I would say um, just just to, you know, my parting words is for us to look within, to look deep within ourselves, um, at least essentially start doing that work. You know, I think of think of everyone's life as a as a stream, and as you go down the stream, there might be rocks and, and 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 trees and things that have you know stopped the flow of this stream where you're only receiving a drip of that water but i think it's time for us to go back up that stream and start removing that debris you know asking those questions and 
and like uh, Dr. Curtis alluded to in, in, in thinking about, you know, what's in our past, like what, how did we get here? And I think it'll help us, you know, receive, you know, more nourishment from what we you know to what we look, what we're looking for as we go downstream. I, I, uh, I would say that um, to the audience, self-reflection, just like every week, just ask yourself, why did I, you know, walk on the left side of the pavement instead of the right? Why did I speak to someone in a certain way? Why was I offended when someone spoke to me in a certain way? Was it what they said or was it how they spoke to me? And just like continue to ask yourself just these simple questions every day and you you are going to learn a bit more about yourself every single time that you do this and it's going to be like the beginning of you trying understanding who you are and um how you how, how you want to grow you know where you want to be in a couple of years like at the end of the year you know we've got this whole new year new me type thing like at the end of the year what have you identified about yourself that you want to change? You know, and if you can't change it yourself, do you need help? Then start to seek that help, you know, um, professionally even, you know, and yeah, it's great to talk to your partner, but like professionally seek that help because when you do that, then you are, you are less likely to dump <laughs> on your partner. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's what I'd say to the audience. All right. So, as I'm hearing everything and I've been through this, this three week process and I sit and I see the men on the panel, I don't see anything weak about what's happening. So I think that one of the things that we have to do, and this is a, this, I'm stretching since I, this is like the final thing. So I'm a stretch stretch on this one. And I think that what we need to do is change the word. I don't think that vulnerability actually speaks to what it is that we're doing. Because if you have fighter, fighter jets, tanks, any machine or anything that's going on, it has a place that gives access to the outside in order for it to get fuel to keep going. And that gas tank is never looked at as a vulnerability except for in the, under the event of an attack. When you're attacking, you will shoot your, your missiles there. But we have to probably also get out of when we're in these spaces that we're trying to be vulnerable, we have to get out of our war zone mentality and understand that what's coming towards that gas tank isn't a missile, but it could be a fuselage. So I think just kind of for us as well, because we are asking, like we're asking for our women and our children and our community members to ignore centuries of narratives that's, as we've heard today, span many different cultures. We're asking them to ignore all of that and listen to us as we explain to you the human experience that we're having. So I think that we also, in that realm, in order to respect that space that we're asking for, we have to also be ready to receive the nourishment that they're giving. So I'll yield my time with that. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you all for being on here. Thank you all for joining the conversation. The last thing I want to say is check on your strong friend, right? Um, we all have that friend that we go to for everything. We talk about everything. They consume it all, listen to you, 
and provide as much guidance and, and hope check on them because as they're replenishing you they may not have somebody replenishing them all right so with that being said i love you all and uh we're gonna end the broadcast